I'm Petrus and welcome to Worldview. Worldview is a podcast where we explore everyone's perspectives on all things that can broaden our worldview. If you've watched any of our content so far and liked it, please consider liking this video, subscribing and donating on Patreon. Today we're talking with John Rendell. John is committed to the George Adamson Wildlife Preservation Trust and is a member of the Royal Geographical Society in London. John took a lion called Christian to George Adamson for rehabilitation in the Cora National Park in 1970. Christian's successful rehabilitation was the subject of a book, A Lion Called Christian, which was subsequently filmed for television. John, welcome to the show. Great. Thank you very much. Very impressed with your office. It's very grand compared to my little flat. <laughs> yes, no, no. I mean, it's, it's, it's definitely quite real and not a green screen, but, you know, <laughs> All right. what we do for production value. Um, so I want to talk first about, before we get to talking about Christian, which I'm sure will be the story that people are the most familiar with in terms of having either seen the show or the television show or the uh, the book itself. I want to talk about your career before you actually met Christian the Lion. Could you just give us a brief rundown or just tell us about it? Well, I, I was born, I am Australian. I was born in uh, Bathurst, which is the oldest inland city in uh, New South Wales, so therefore in the um, colony of Australia when it was founded. Um, uh, Bathurst, 1813, uh, um, was, they crossed the Blue Mountains and founded a, a very rich pastoral country. So my family had a, a farm there where we had 27 inches of rain a year. It was very, you know, for Australia, it was a very um, 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 good place to grow up, good farming country. Uh, I went to an agricultural college there and uh, then I went down to Sydney University and um, uh, had a very good time indeed. I mean, I'm sure it's good at times you guys all had a Vits down there. You know, it's pretty good time university. And um, in those years, of course, there, there wasn't such a thing as a gap year. Um, you went to school, 
you went to university and then you traveled and you didn't do this what everyone seems to do now like my children have all done the moment they finished school they were all off around the world galloping all over the world then they came back to university well that in 50 years ago in australia that that didn't happen and so i finished university and then um it was very much the time of swinging london and um there was this also i'm probably the last generation of australians who think of england as home because you know australia is a much more multi cultural multinational country now all the better for that very diverse and you know wonder, wonderful food music and um, entertainment creativity but in those days it was england 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 and so when we finished university one came to england you didn't go to bali you didn't go to nepal you know you didn't go to japan if you did it was just along the way you came to england and so much was happening here then. I mean, obviously there was the Beatles, so there was Stones, there was fashion. Um, and um, many of my contemporaries or predecessors at university had already come. My English lecturer was Jermaine Greer. She came over here, wrote the female eunuch. Clive James, who became a, a, a commentator and, um, and journalist. Barry Humphreys, the comedian. Um, uh, was over here. Uh, I'm sure you know Barry Humphreys as a character, uh, and um, a number of artists had, had very successful exhibitions in London. Um, and three of my university friends had come and started a magazine called Oz here, which was rather um, controversial at the time, shall we say? And they all went to jail for that. Um, briefly, they all got off, but it was uh, you know it was really what was happening in London. We all wanted to come here, so I couldn't wait to get here. Yeah. I mean, it's it's interesting that you know that's a, that's the journey that you started with. I mean, it's and and relating it to the journeys that we have today as something that I didn't really initially thought about. You know, you have these life experiences in terms of where you go around and something like that. But at the end, you come back to London and you look at the society and the and the cultural experience there. What was it in that time period that actually led you to? be interested in wildlife preservation or what was the drive to it? Was it was it meeting Christian or was it before that? I'd always be having grown up in a country town and having a farm. I'd always been surrounded by you know, the normal, you know, the, the horses, the dogs and the cattle. But of course, in Australia, we had the kangaroos and um, uh, the odd platypus, very rare even then. But um, I was aware of the needs of animals, shall I say, you know, that um, one had to um, respect and appreciate them and, you know, in whatever way you were um, raising them. And um, I mean, our dogs, for example, were all working dogs, fabulous animals called Kelpies. And in fact, till I went to Sydney, no, until I came to London, I'd never seen a dog in a house before. We had working dogs. You know, what was all these people with dogs in houses and restaurants? I thought, oh, wow, you know. So anyhow, when I came to London, um, with that background of uh, growing up, with that being surrounded by animals and birds, uh, galahs, cockatoos, kookaburras, you know, it's fabulous. It's not as diverse as Africa, of course, game-wise, but it's pretty interesting. And um, so when I came here, um, I hadn't foreseen any future involving animals at all. It was the King's Road. There was the music, it was the gigs, it was David Bowie, it was the Stones, you know, that's where I was going and, and buying ridiculous clothes, you know, I mean, it was just fantastic. Carnaby Street and the King's Road. And then um, I got a job um, in um, a furniture shop in the King's Road selling pine furniture, 
which was very trendy at the time. You know, people, pine furniture was for the schoolrooms, for the attics, for the, the staff. It was very, um, you know, it was a kind of secondary um, a piece of timber. But suddenly in the 60s, everything changed with people like Terence Conran, they were saying, you know, we've got to be more relaxed the way we live. So people started, you know, the formal dining room was going, people were eating in their kitchens and, and you know, sitting around the kitchen tables. And one of the, the um, uh, essential things of that was a pine table. And uh, so this shop called Sophisticat uh, in Kings Road did very well catering to that change of in entertainment from formality to far more relaxed, you know, people all sitting around in a, in a kitchen living room rather than having separate rooms. And um, um, I went to um, Harrods with, uh, with Ace, this friend of mine I've been to university with, and I went there because a friend of ours, a very beautiful Australian girl who lived in Rome, she was married to the American ambassador there and she was painted by Pietro Anagoni many, many times. And he'd had a very successful exhibition in London selling a number of portraits of Barry. She had this rather unusual name for a girl, Barry. And they'd sold them all very successfully. And um, there was San Lorenzo for lunch, a very famous restaurant in Beecham Place, and got over-celebrated, shall we say. And Pietro said, well, go to Harrods. I want to buy you a special present. So they went round to Harrods and ended up in the pet department, the zoo as it was then. And the general manager, of course, recognised Pietro. I mean, this is a man who's painted the Queen and, you know, famous artist. Ah, oh, Signor Anagoni, you know, what would you like? And he said, I'd like a present for my most beautiful muse. And, um, and Barry immediately said, oh, I think I'd like a camel. And without batting an eyelid, the general manager said, with, that, with one hump or two, madam. <laughs> so I just thought, I've got to go to this place where there's such a cool guy managing the department. Because um, in Sydney, um, David Jones is our kind of Harrods. But I mean, that would not happen. You wouldn't walk in there and say, they wouldn't try and sell you a platypus, for example. <laughs> so... Um, I dragged Ace around there. I said, we've got to see this ridiculous place. Walked in there and there were these two beautiful two and a half month old lion cubs there. And I just looked and thought, oh, I mean, first of all, they were irresistible. But secondly, I thought, now hang on, they're sitting on the second floor in a cage in a department store in central London. You know, I wasn't very comfortable with that. And, um, so, and people were kind of poking at them and, you know, grimacing at them. And I thought, oh, and anyhow, the um, sales assistant, a girl called Sandy Lloyd was there. And I said, oh, I, you know, I'm not really sure this is a great idea. And she said, oh, well, we, they're not here all the time. We look after them and, you know, they're, they're only here for a certain time each day. Otherwise, they're out the back. And I said, well, oh, God, I said, I think, I think I'd like to buy them. And she just looked at me and she said, oh, a lot of people buy them because want to buy them because it was just before Christmas and they were advertising them as the Christmas present for the person who had everything. And she said, look, if you are interested, come back tomorrow and talk to the general manager and um, um, he of Camel fame and, uh, and talk to him. So he came back and looked at them and I said, he said, well, where would you keep them? What would you do? Um, can you afford them? Because they were 250 guineas each. It's about three and a half thousand pounds today. 
So it's oh. a rather a lot of money. Yeah. So at that point, I said, mm, I think we might just have one of them, you know, because <laughs> you buy a damn good car for 250 yeah. Um And, and Harrods, they've been criticised, but um, they were actually very responsible. Um, we had to go back time and time and time again, be interviewed. Um, they checked my bank account, see if I had enough money to look after him. Um, they came to see where he was going to live we were going to exercise him. And uh, eventually they agreed that we could have the one we chose, which was the male, who was much calmer than the female. And because, uh, you know, as you will know as an African, that, you know, those female lionesses can be pretty carly, you know. The yes. lions have a certain kind of dignity and I'll mm. sit back a bit. But uh, so we, um, we agreed that we would buy him. And we'd have to wait another, I think, two or three weeks before we got him. Anyhow, um, one day the uh, morning, the general manager rang up and he said, can you come and get Christian today? Because he was called Marcus. We renamed him Christian. We thought Christians and Lions is a kind of synergy there somewhere, you know. And um, we said, oh, what's happened? He said, well, there was an incident last night. I said, oh. He said, well, the next department to us, as you know, is the carpet department. And the carpet department had a goat skin, goat skin special on for the next week. And unfortunately, the lions had got out and had totally destroyed the goat skin special. The specials were all piled up. And so apparently the general manager of the carpet department said, if you don't get rid of those bloody lions, you know, that's the end of it. So we went and got him and he came, he came home earlier. And so he arrived in the King's Road. Well, that's fantastic. That's an amazing story. I mean, it's, 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 such a, it's, it's incredible. It's, it's just not an environment that I quite expected for that to happen in. But for you to meet somebody that, you know, so fundamentally changed the way in which you interacted with wildlife and, and your life at that point. I mean, just reading up, I mean, you've, you've been involved in so much more wildlife preservation. And also, I mean, you know, times have changed. I can understand these people did really a lot of effort in terms of, you know, catering and making sure the people that adopted these animals were able to look after them as they should have been. But in these days, it'd almost be, you know, strange to see animals at zoos, uh, sorry, uh, animals at um, circuses even, you know, or, or yes. any type of other environment that's not in their natural uh, wild habitat. So, you know, that, that environment sounds a lot, but people still have the capacity to buy, and I say in quotes, buy a lion um, in the sense of sponsoring one, uh, one that's in a rehabilitation program or perhaps in a, in a, in a preservation park somewhere, uh, you know, preferably in the natural habitat. Well, that's yeah. the best, or that's a great alternative today. Mm. Because, uh, and, and then of course there weren't, uh, I mean, Longleat had only just started, which was the first lion park in London, which was started at Longleat by the Marquis of Bath and Jimmy Chipfield. Um, but there are many, safari parks now and they're not you know, that's not the, the perfect solution but they're acceptable because the animals are being looked after they've got some space around them they're not in nasty cages i mean christian's parents were born christian was born in a very basic cage in a little zoo at ilfracum down in devon and i think in the book i've got photographs of it that you know it was cement floor it was wire it was very small it was pretty grim and that's where he was born because um, his father had come from Jerusalem and his mother had come from the Rotterdam Zoo because animals were traded all over the place then quite, yeah. you know, without, without any laws. And um, um, George Adamson was always intrigued because two of Elsa's sisters went to Rotterdam Zoo. Mm -hmm. So he always fantasized that maybe Christian was related to Elsa. 
but uh, no, he had a, a Dutch mother and a Jewish father. So I always say he was a Dutch Jewish lion born in Devon and raised by Aussies and rehabilitated in Kenya by an Englishman. <laughs> That's, that is quite the creative lineage. I mean, it'll be hard to match in any way. I was doing a lecture up in North London once, which if you know London, there's a certain uh, strong community up there. And I said he was a Dutch Jew and 10 people put up their hands and said, so are we. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's amazing. I mean, we, we also have, uh, I remember now, uh, we have um, uh, we have a fantastic park here, right near where I live um, in, in, in Cape Town. We have a, a, a farm called Speed, and near the Speed, oh, they I have these. It. I know it. You know it, yeah. Oh, yeah and yeah. they have these amazing rehabilitation where they take um, birds that have been injured. Uh, you know, for the viewers that don't know, they take these birds that have been injured, and some of them come from pretty bad environments. You know, either working environments where they're in forests, they're being cut down, or power line incidents, or, you know, just urban environments where these birds shouldn't be. They take them there and then they care for them. But I mean, this obviously costs a lot of money to rehabilitate uh, to rehabilitate uh, an animal. And so people can sponsor them. And you then own that animal, but not in the strict sense you can take it home, but rather just you own that animal in a period of time that your name is on it and you're sponsoring and you're responsible yeah. for looking uh, sorry like caring for it. yeah in, in what way does like exactly how does rehabilitation work because i know at some point you actually took christian to george adamson for rehabilitation and I know, i'm assuming rehabilitation isn't exactly in the sense of taming the lion but more it's detaming him yeah it's, it's actually yeah, detaming it. it's actually yeah. the opposite right what because, does that what does that process involve well you see because we had him for a year in england and in that time um, you will know, and um, obviously your fellow countrymen will know that um, if you ever see a lion by itself, something is wrong. Yeah. It's injured or it's lost. They're never alone. They're always with their pride, with their paws linked over each other. They're, you know, they're uh, always cuddling and licking each other. And um, so when you have a lion by itself, lions being the only gregarious big cat, uh, you never see leopards together unless they're breeding or, lion, or tigers or or um, jaguars, um, you know, a lion by himself is in trouble. And so when there are no other lions around, they will look for a substitute family. And so therefore, of all the big cats, they are the easiest to habituate because they're looking for company. Mm. Now, although, you know, uh, the story is, you know, the book and uh, the film, that's all about Ace and myself. In fact, there were eight of us looking after that little lion. There was myself, my girlfriend, Ace, his girlfriend, the two boys who owned the shop, the cleaning lady, a girl who came to play with him every day, um, who'd had a lioness in Rome, so she knew a lot about looking after lions in, um, in urban situations, and Derek Catani, the photographer, who took all the photographs. So he was never alone. And if he was awake, there was someone with him. And so that was a reason he was incredibly calm, because he was never bored, he was never frustrated, um, people were always playing football with him or playing with him or the exercise. I mean, lions are damned lazy animals. You know, they sleep something like 16 hours a day. You know, they, they don't need a great deal of exercise. And we used to take him up to this um, walled um, graveyard just up the road in the King's Road. And after 20 minutes of chasing a football, that was enough. He'd had it, didn't want any more at all. Yeah. And so that was enough per day. And then the rest of the time was just sitting around playing with people or sleeping. Mm. And the only unnatural thing we did with him, he was sleeping at night rather than the day, which, of course, in the wild is normally the other way around with lions. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. Um, 
and uh, and and in the mornings we sometimes had to wake him up you know he was very happy very content he was also very well looked after in terms of food because harrods had given us a very full dietary list and four meals a day and two liquid and two solid and so unlike lion cubs in the wild which really struggle you know they eat last and after they're suckled you know they, they eat last and uh, so if it's a bad season you know high fatality it's you know it's a high percentage of cubs that don't make two years old something like 50 60 percent it's a very high percent um and in fact so christian therefore one year old when we took him to kenya he was a very big lion and when george adamson saw him he said this is not a one-year-old lion and i said well he's never missed a meal in his life yeah. Because the other thing George said, because he looked at Ace and myself and Derek Katani, photographer who came with us, Christian came with a winter coat because he'd come out of winter in England. So there we were, the four of us. And George just looked and he said, you're a hairy bunch, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> so we had all the, yeah. road, you know, all the locks. You know. Yeah, um, of course. No, so, but to rehabilitate a lion is a long process because to rehabilitate a leopard is easily. You open the cage door. It's run a hundred yards. It's probably already killed three things. You know, <laughs> you don't have to teach them, but yeah. lions have to be taught, and they have to be taught to you know work as a team, as you know the the process of some you know the lionesses do the initial mm. run because they're lighter and faster, so they'll grab the buffalo or whatever it is, probably not able to kill it, but by the time the male's caught up with his weight double their size. He comes in with a coup de grace. And of course, it's a very sophisticated system, fascinating to watch. You don't even know if the lionesses can all see each other at one time, but they seem to be know what's going on. So they and so Christian had to learn to become part of that team. Because having been because the team he's a straight his um human team couldn't help him. And we're not going to run and catch a buffalo. I mean <laughs> and also he had to you learn You mean you didn't try? <laughs> You also had to learn to know what a buffalo looked like, you know, because um, he'd only seen a number twenty-two bus in the King's Road. You know, I mean, I mean, he, he saw he saw a goat next door in London. Uh, the goat skin. <laughs> he saw the goat skins. Yes, he didn't, yeah. see, he didn't see the real. He just saw the goat skins. Yes. Yeah, yeah. No, so, and and that's why when um, uh, this opportunity arose, because um, obviously we knew we couldn't keep him in London forever. And it wasn't because he'd attacked anybody who was or he was unhappy or you know or that it was just he was he was up to 175 pounds and having gone from 35 pounds when we bought him and and he would only had to lent against the window of the shop for example and could have you know really injured himself or someone else and so we'd um, considered um taking him to longleat to the lion park down there at, um, in wiltshire um, and then one day, um, Bill Travers and Virginia McKenna, who'd played Joy and George Adamson in the film Born Free, came into the shop and he was, Bill was trying to buy a desk. And um, we'd never even seen Born Free, Born Free, but we recognized and said, oh, I think we've got something downstairs you'd prefer. And so he went downstairs and he just said, oh, my God. He just could not believe how calm Christian was, mm -hmm. how affectionate and how healthy because when they had made born free they'd 
it was very tricky because they were using circus lines initially. And Ginny, one had broken Ginny's ankle, Bill had been attacked. It was not easy. And I'm sure you've seen that film when it all looks so lovely and gentle. It was not. Yeah. Not in the making of that film at all. Mm. And suddenly when they saw Christian, they, they thought, well, this is quite an extraordinary animal. And um, so they told George Adams about it because they kept in touch with him. And um, George was about to rehabilitate a lion of his, uh, which, he'd, which had been in the film of Born Free, and he'd rehabilitated when Born Free film was finished. And um, so he was actually looking to build up a new pride. And so the opportunity to have a two-year-old male, um, he, he was rather intrigued. Mm. And so we started a correspondence and he said, look, I've no idea whether a fifth generation lion can be rehabilitated. I just don't know. I mean, Elsa, Elsa knew the smells of Africa. She knew yeah. she, she was there. Christian had no knowledge. And anyhow, we hummed and hummed, all eight of us sat down and thought, well, you know, what, what, what should we do? And we thought, look, this is a unique opportunity. We're, this is the guru of lions. This is the man who knows more about lions than anyone else in the world. If anyone can do it, he will. And we were confident because Christian was so strong. He was healthy. And also George said the easiest lions to rehabilitate are lions that, ha that are habituated to people because you can guide them, you can help them, and you can... Um, uh, you you can show them things and you know they just don't run off like a leopard would and um, so we decided to do it we took him gave him to George astounded by his size as you saw as I told you and um, he, he it actually worked which it was quite tough because you know when Christian arrived in up at Cora up in Meru National Park <clears throat> the first thing was of course his pads, he'd been running around in Chelsea with nice grass. And suddenly, like you and me on the beach on the first day, going, ooh, ah, ooh, ah, ooh, you know, he's kind of going, oh, my God, you know, what's this? His coat had to fall out yeah. um, and his pads had to toughen up. Yeah. Um, but that happened pretty quickly. And um, we only left him there for three, we stayed for three weeks. And that was just so that we were totally confident that, he was going to be fine with George. I mean, I didn't really doubt it, but it was just slightly just to enjoy spending time with such a guru, you know, to be with such a man because he was an extraordinary man. I mean, he was more African than most most tribes. You know, he, he knew every animal. He knew, he knew Swahili, he knew Orma, he knew Gala, he knew Masa. You know, he spoke so many different languages and, um, the locals all respected him enormously. He was a man of great wisdom. And so just to spend those first weeks with him was an incredible privilege. And so we left knowing that Christian was in the safest of hands. Yeah. And I mean, it, it, you, you get these videos online these days about um, similar scenarios in lion 
rehabilitation um, centers uh, with these lion gurus, you know, that, that walk among the fields and then, you know, the lion comes out of somewhere or they're like playfully stalking him from behind. And they, I saw they, that one, yes. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're so, the lions are so incredibly affectionate. And I know for a period of time, you actually, um, a Christian actually was away from you, separated from you for a time and then he came back. What that was, was that year. reunion like? Was that something like that? You know, that was the, that the, was the year. But to yeah. go back to you talking about those people with lions, a guy called Kevin Richardson, who I'm sure you know. Yes. And of course, Kevin, he rescues lions. Yes. I mean, he's not really rehabilitating, but he's rescuing them. And he's providing a great facility for them. I've met, met Kevin, admired the way that he works with his lions. But unfortunately, you know, they're not going back into the wild. He's, you know, he's making a great life for them. Um, but no, Christian, so he was, um, uh, it was a year later, we went back to see him. George was a very good correspondent, telling us all what had happened and things and amusing stories. Like um, he's, every day he would take the big lion boy and her little cub called Catania, and then later two lionesses and Christian, they'd all go out walking just to know the territory. And one day, George said they were walking up and there was a rhino in front of them. Boy, of course, saw the rhino and thought, ah, you know, I just turn away. Of course, yeah. lion, mature lions don't go near mature rhinos. And um, he just walked away and the other lions followed him, except Christian, who, of course, had never seen a rhino. So he starts stalking this rhino and George thought, oh, this is going to be, this is going to be tricky. And so he took his rifle off his shoulder, ready to fire a shot in the air to scare the rhino away. He thought, look, Christian, you know, he's got to learn. So Chris gets closer and closer and closer. And eventually, of course, the rhino looks up, outraged to see this kind of youngish cub stalking it. And all George saw was a huge cloud of dust and Christian th thrown th either thrown through the air or leapt through the air. Rhino charged past, absolutely furious. And Christian's lying there in the dust stuffing. And George says the most wonderful moment when boy the mature lion turned round and just looked at christian and he said you you, you knew what he was saying you know you whatever <laughs> <How Yeah. could laughs> you? but george wrote about all those things he was very you know he was terrific and um unfortunately the big lion boy he was attacked by wild lions and they'd um, damaged his back and like anyone with a damaged back, you, your nature changed. He was always in pain. He was always, and he got, um, and he started to get even, even kind of tricky with Christian. They bonded enormously. And unfortunately, one day um, he, he killed our cook there and George had to shoot him, which was a real tragedy for Christian. Mm. It was a tragedy for all of us, for the cook, obviously, and for, for the project, but for Christian, because he'd lost his alpha male. And at two, he wasn't mature enough or strong enough or big enough to defend a pride. So set, that set the whole thing back. And uh, so we went out to see George and to console him about the loss of Boy. And um, of course, you know, he was heartbroken because he'd known Boy since born three days. But, you know, he was an injured lion. He was in pain and he did, uh, did the ultimate kind of sin. Um, but Christian, um, he, so he was by himself with two lionesses then, just three of them at the time. And part of the rehabilitation is this um, uh, dehabituating, if that's a word, to mm. keep them away from people because the hunter and the um, conservationist, photographer, 
they're all wearing khaki. They've all got a khaki Range Rover or Land Rover or Toyota. They've all got a gun. So how does the lion tell the difference? So George would keep his lions away from people. If people came up to the camp to see him, and people did a lot, of course, they wanted to see the lions. And George would say, I don't take you to them. This is not Longleat. It is not a zoo. It is not a safari park. If the lions come in, fine, you'll see them. And otherwise, that's it. And so when we went back, um, George um, he hadn't seen Christian for two or three months. And he said, look, I'm not really sure if you come out we'll see him we just don't know yeah. Anyhow, we flew up to cora from nairobi and uh, george met us and he said um he knows you're coming he's here he turned up last night amazing and so then i said can we see him now he said no 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 they're lying up i know where they are we'll go and see them tomorrow morning and so um if you've seen the clip you know we're at the bottom of this cliff yes and george brings boy uh, uh, brings brings christian over the cliff now christian obviously realized something's quite different because he's actually taking him to see people and so he's looking at us as he's walking down the hill very slowly and um we weren't for a moment concerned because it wasn't as if he was stalking, you know, he wasn't yeah. bushes and rocks and things. He was actually just walking down curiously. And he got about halfway down and that's when George said, call him. And when we called him and he started to run, and of course they're very vocal animals. There was a lot of wow, wow, was going on. And the only danger was that he was then about maybe nearly 300 pounds. A 300 pound lion running at 25 miles an hour you want to brace yourself Petrus. <laughs> you've got to be uh, take, take it steadily and of course he was so affectionate and just brilliant and even though i mean that is that's a fabulous bit of uh, that aspect of that footage yes. but the the really extraordinary thing is the lionesses came down now those lionesses have been given to george but by the time he'd been given to them they'd had such a hard time with people they didn't want to know so they never came into camp they'd come outside they never let him touch them and yet that one lioness she came up and you know you, put photographs of me just patting this wild lioness and obviously christian could say you know their communication levels are so sophisticated you say no this is this is part of the gang and so you know that's a very power, powerful um uh, feeling and uh, realization and that but george said look i think you know i think we've done enough i think we'll go back to camp now keep yeah. your hand on christian yeah. um and um, and then we went back another year later and uh, he was then nearly 500 pounds perhaps no, about 450 sorry so we're getting up to kind of kruger size lions now because up in meru it's a very it's um, it's not like kruger or serengeti or Masai Mara is tough, tough country. And so the lions up there are nothing like the size of those lions. So a lion may be only 250, maximum 300 pounds. Lioness is 150. You know, they're much smaller. Um, but Christian was obviously from different stock. And he was going to be very big lion indeed. And um, at that stage, well, he was three-ish and he was more mature. And he was much more, I mean, I have a couple of sons and, you know, when they're young, you, you hug them and you kiss them and all that. And I remember once Max, who's my elder boy, was um, he's a rower and his team won at Henley. 
And afterwards, I so excited, I rushed up and grabbed him. And because he turned around and said, you know, not in front of the guys, Dad. You know, we're growing <laughs> up. We don't do that anymore. You know? Yeah. <laughs> and, and lines are not much different, I'm assuming. It makes me laugh to think about. Um, and he was a bit like that, you know, still very affectionate and very friendly. But it was a bit like, you know, I've got things to do and uh, ladies to see to. And, you know, but, yeah, he had and, responsibility. Um, and he had, and by that stage, he really, he was in his full stride of 500 pounds ish. And um, um, there's a photo, there's a photo, oh, I don't know if you can see, there's this photo here. That's the yes. last, you see that one up there? That's the yeah. last one was taken of him with George. And he's over 550 pounds then at three and a half. So, I mean, I mean, these are guesstimates, of course. Um, and so he's by far the biggest lion in the area. And um, at that stage, he went, he, he moved, he had to go and set up his own pride. He crossed the Tana River. Um, George would hear him roaring because, you know, a roar would five, six miles at night, yes. nothing particularly over water. He heard him mating. And as you know, that's a three day event, very noisy yes. indeed. Um, so we know that the gene was perpetuated, but um, he was never seen again. But um, he'd been so well trained by George, he knew to keep away from people. Um, the local people all knew that Juana George had a special lion. And um, he was the only employee in the area, employer in the area. And he would hire local people to build roads or to build huts or, you know, help with airstrips and things and roads. And so they were, uh, they were not going to do, you know, they were not going to touch Christian. Yeah. I mean, he, he did kill a domestic cow once, a gombi once uh, in a local village. And the, mm -hmm. the villagers all said, God, we must kill this terrible lion. And the chief said, no, 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 it's Buana's. Mm -hmm. And so he, he came down, got George, and George went up. And he said it was the first time he actually ever whacked a lion. And Christian was there chewing on this gombi, on this cow. And he went up with his little swagger stick and he went whack. And Christian just was obviously so astounded, you know, that he never did it again. Never <laughs> did it again. <laughs> it was well reprimanded. Yeah. And also we know that he, he um, we're pretty sure he wasn't poached because he would have been the biggest trophy in the entire area. Hmm. And back in those days, everyone knew the hunters, everyone knew the taxidermists. Someone would have bragged that they had the biggest lion trophy, and that didn't happen. And there are still, I mean, friends of mine live up there, run lodges and things, and they send me photographs. And every now and again, there'll be a photograph and they say, there's the gene, because it'll be heavier boned, wider, wider head, which Christian had this very kind of wide head and his big, you know, big, um, big, strong, uh, strong head and heavier boned. So we think the gene is where we very confident the gene is still there. Yeah, so that's he, amazing. He really had, and in fact, um, we've just done another book, Derek and I, which is called um, Christian's Legacy. Ah, yes. Which is all about, you know, he did leave a legacy. Yeah. And, and um, in fact, uh, Cora became a national, was, we took it as a game reserve, and it was eleva elevated to a national park status. And George once said, you know, this is a tribute to a mischievous and brave young lion from London to have a national park named after you. So, I mean, it, it, it is a bizarre story, isn't it?
it's it's phenomenal. I mean, the, the whole journey all the way through takes so many twists and turns, but yeah. at the same time, it just remains so amazingly positive. I know for a fact that when I saw that, and there was also there was another movie. I think it was most definitely also inspired uh, by Christian. Um, I can't remember the name of it now. Uh, there's one scene in the movie where it, where it ends with a lion in a maize field, but anyways, um, and it's, it's 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 the the legacy he left there, and then and then lives lives that he touched on, I think make a ma made a mass massive massive difference in terms of people's perspectives, especially back then. You know, in terms of how lions are kept and how they're treated and how they are. You know, it's it's kind of this thing where there's a lot of fear around it because the fear comes from um, people not knowing. It comes from uh, you know, ignorance, rather the fear around them and yeah. the way in which they're treated and, and and chased away from the communities. So he did a lot of, of, of effort there. I just want to quickly, and a very important uh, pit we have to touch on uh, for this interview is the uh, George Adamson Wildlife Preservation Trust. Um, this is a phenomenal um, organization or trust rather uh, that that does so much for wildlife in Africa um, that I definitely recommend people to to, to Google it and, and, and look at it itself. But if you could just give your own to, you know, just what does it do? What does it stand for um, to encourage people to thank research you, this? Thank you for that uh, mentioning it because um, George, as you know, was murdered in 1989 at Cora by Somalis and Tony Fitzjohn, who'd been his assistant for 18 years. I mean, I could have stayed out there with George. I mean, the, the, he didn't have an assistant then. Um, and um, it was a very attractive temptation. But, you know, I was 23, 20, you know, and I mean, I was only, and because of um, uh, having Kristen in London, there was a hell of a lot of things I couldn't do because hmm. you just can't take a line everywhere. No. And you can't go away everywhere, you know, it was a huge, and so although it was a fantastic year with him in London, it was also quite limiting in a way, and I was want to get back into the swing of things. And um, um, George, and, and also we thought realistically that uh, it would be harder if I stayed because I had to, Ace and I had to transfer our relationship to George. Yeah. And so if I or either of us were still there, it would have maybe complicated things. Um, but uh, so in 1989, George was murdered and um, obviously Tony lost heart and realised it wasn't safe to continue the conservation work there. And so he went to the Tanzanian government and said, look, you know who I am, what my experience is. Um, and so they offered us the Mukamazi Game Reserve in Tanzania. And it was a, a wilderness, as was Cora, because if if it had gold or diamonds or petrol, I mean, we wouldn't have been given it. No. And the, the Tanzanian gov government said, look, we will clear out the illegal grazers and that's it. It's up to you mm. to start. And so 30 years ago, Tony set up the George Adamson Trust, Wildlife Preservation Trust in Tanzania. And uh, now... 30 years later, we've just passed it back to Tanapa, to the Tanzanian Wildlife Department. Their country, our project, now back in their hands. And we've left, we left excuse me, we've left um, 11 schools uh, because education is obviously very much part of the trust's um, aim, um, technical college, day centres, and uh, prime of all, 38 black rhino. The first four... That's amazing. The first four, which came from Addo National Park. Yeah. And um, I was very fortunate. I um, uh, had a great friend um, in Johannesburg who introduced me to, to um, Nelson Mandela. 
And I told him, I said, um, you've just given us four black rhinos. And he said, have we? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, you know, and that's that's actually that's a terribly sad uh, comment, actually, because there's so many South Africans that don't realize what a treasure we have in our rhinos. And well, yes, how you had, but the thing is, the the black ones at Addo were in the wrong place. They'd been yeah, given yeah. by the Tanzanian government as a kind of political yeah. goodwill back in the fifties. Well, black rhinos should not be at Addo. There are only white rhinos there. Because you know, black rhinos are, are, are gray, uh, are browsers, they're not grazers. So the black rhino were in the wrong place. And so that was the reason we got them, because um, the then uh, the South African Parks Board were then kind of tidying up their act, shall we say, and making sure the right animals in the right place. And they suddenly realized these black rhinos were completely the wrong place. And so we were given four of them and uh, we flew them up in a um, uh, an Antonov bomber, a uh, converted Antonov bomber <laughs> to, up to um, uh, Mukamazi and um, in, in Tanzania, which was pretty amazing sight, this huge Russian thing belching out kerosene smoke. I mean, the most polluting thing you've ever seen. Yes. So those four, and now we're up to 30, 34, 35 black rhino in the rhino sanctuary there. And uh, with um, the only place with more black rhino in Tanzania is in Gorongora Crater, mm. which is uh, funded by Frankfurt Zoo. But mm. we're only a little charity, but we've managed to do that um, and hand it back to the Tanzanian government. And so we're now in the process of going back to Kora in Kenya, where it all started. Mm. And we've got the undertaking from uh, President uh, Kenyatta, Uru Kenyatta, who's a friend friend of the charity to say that we will be protected up there because it's right up towards the Somali border. Mm. And um, I mean, it's a fact of life that, you know, Somalia has been overgrazed. And so, you know, these people are bringing their cattle into Kenya and into, into the national parks. And that's causing great conflict. Yeah. And um, uh, so we're going to have to have some protection up there, but um, it's, um, it's a beautiful part of Kenya. It's tough. It's not Kruger. It's not the Maasai Mara. And I take people on safaris there and they get a bit itchy after you know, a few hours if they haven't seen the big five. You know, I'm yeah. sorry, this is not what's going on. You've got to work at it. And so that kind of safari is fantastic because everything you find is you, you've really made an effort. And um, so we're hoping, you know, we'll get, we're, hoping we'll put all the rhinos are gone now there were 400 rhino there in uh, 1970 there are none yeah. now yeah this is yeah this is a uh this is a horrible reality. We, we recently spoke to um, Lord Peter Hain uh, who's also oh, yeah. very very committed to yeah. the the rhino preservation and yeah. I, I mean good guy yeah it's it's phenomenal it's 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 something there was a drive a couple of years back here in south africa where there was a severe push for awareness uh, of our rhinos of course i mean rhinos all across africa really but just mm -hmm. the rate at which they were post uh, poached was was they were trying to bring awareness to this and everybody had these little you know red rhino horns in the front of their cars mm -hmm. um to raise awareness but it is so far from from reality it, it's so far from what those rhinos experience um, and how little of them are left. I mean, this is, do you have, do you have any statistics or something you tell us? Just give us like just a little bit of perspective on this because anything along those messages is something we definitely like to, 
um, to preach? Well, um, I'm better on lions and rhinos, but um, uh, there were 7,000 rhinos uh, in Tanzania in 70. There are about 400 now, of yeah. which we've got 38. Yeah. But and but it's the figure that you mentioned earlier. But with with the lion situation, when we took um, Christian to Kenya, there were four hundred thousand lions living in the wild across Africa. Today, Lion Aid is a very good charity based here. Less than fifteen thousand in the wild. Now I know there are a lot in South Africa, but but those are not wild. There's that whole hand hunting situation, which is something quite separate, but in the wild and the, and it's, I think it's only six viable populations, South Africa, Zambia, uh, Kenya, Tanzania, I can't, uh, but there's very, very limited. I mean, the, the West African lion's gone, mm. definitely yeah. gone. If there are any in Ethiopia, you could count them on one hand, Somalia, one hand. So it's down to, you know, to Kenya, Tanzania, South Africa, Zambia, um, actually, and, and Zim, quite, you know, surprising, there are still good um, viable numbers in Zimbabwe. But, you know, with the exploding population of Africa, you know, people need grazing land, you know, they're struggling. And um, in uh, Mukamazi, we, we've had minimal trouble with bushmeat, but we don't, never caused too much of a ruckus about that because they knew the people were poor and they were taking the odd antelope to eat you know yeah. they'd never touched our lions they never touched our rhinos so that you know that's that, you know that's thing you've got to work together with your with your local people um but the plight of lions now in the wild is it is really very depressing indeed just what's what what exactly i mean uh... I understand the population growth requires more, um, you know, more grounds being made available for livestock and so on and so forth. This is this is an obvious need, and it's very very difficult to even start the conversation of where do you put a human life in comparison to a species life, I and mean, that's that's something no discussion really wants to have. But practically, what what is the step forward? Is it is it is it environments where people accept? that this is a preservation area these are the numbers we need to maintain for a sustainable uh, community of lions or or is it expanding this which obviously then you know brings into grazing grounds like what is the practical point going forward with this and trying to keep this alive because well, i'm assuming yeah. the more you push out into especially population centers you're gonna you're gonna get a lot of kickback well i mean very very good point and there are a number of charities and i can speak best about kenya uh where um they're compensating people for the loss of cattle to lions. Now, particularly, see, the Maasai have always had a very close relationship with lions. Um, and, um, you know, a young warrior had to kill a lion to become a man. Well, that's all stopped now. I mean, because the, uh, they realize, Maasai realized that. But on the other hand, I don't know uh, how much you know about the Maasai as a tribe. They're very, very clever people. They're very clever. And um, they realize that uh, if people are going to come into their part of the world, which is particularly the Maasai Mara, they're going to bring money. Mm. And the Maasai want to keep their same lifestyle. They don't want to go and work in Nairobi and banks and things. You know, they mm. want their cattle. They want to be out in the wild. You know, they're, they're a magnificent tribe of people. And, you know, they really value their heritage. And since Uhuru in 55, they've, they've been disadvantaged in many ways because they didn't westernize. They didn't. Mm. They weren't interested. 
because when the first Europeans went went to Africa and they saw the Maasai, the Maasai just looked at us and said, oh, rub, you're rubbish, you know, they've got such a strong culture. But now um, they're, they're having to adapt their culture and particularly around the lion. And so they're being compensated if cattle are killed by a lion. Um, and it's interesting, you know, um, the lions, I mean, I've been in the Maasai Mara and uh, I've seen two little Maasai boys with just a stick walking along with maybe a hundred cattle. And you'll see the lions, they'll look up, they'll think, oh, what's that? And then yeah. they see these little guys in red and they think, uh-uh, I'm not going to go there because there are big guys in red who come after us. Uh-huh. They know. Yeah. And, you know, yeah. the, so there's a kind of, they, you know, they, they kind of work it out. It's, it's difficult, but, um, you know, there, there is that, that is one area which, it, which has been quite successful with compensation. Yeah, no, I mean, there's there's a balance there. And I think, like you mentioned here, with this specific tribe uh, and their culture and way of doing things, it'll have to be tailor-made. It'll have to be bespoke for every single yeah. tribe, every single context. It'll have to yeah. be thoroughly investigated what compromise best works here, what fits with their culture, because if it doesn't fit with their culture, doesn't matter what your opinion is on that maintaining of that culture, it's not going to be sustainable. And sustainability is the, is the, the, the point to thrive for here in terms of finding a, a common ground that actually fits and is not something which constantly causes you know renegotiation and tension because that's just not going to last. Um, and, if, but, and if you don't have those lions, like if you don't have those magnificent lions in Kruger, tourists yeah. are not going to come and pay and there's not going to be that injection of capital into the community and so that's what we've tried to do is you know, get something that's why we've built schools and you know to try to say look you know this this is how it's got to work for the future and um this this is where um you know if tourists come they're going to buy your father's cattle for, for meat and they're going to buy your mother's vegetables and if no one comes you know it's just subsistence living no, no. And you've got an yeah. asset. I mean, the as- Africa's greatest asset. I mean, I, I know people talk about gold and diamonds and things, but it's wildlife mm-hmm. is incredible. And of course, that is the one in most danger. Yeah. There will yeah, always exactly. be diamonds and gold in Africa, but there yeah. will always be lions. Yeah. No, I mean, I mean, maintaining that part is also one of the parts that's more special, uh, if anything else. I mean, the resources, they often don't leave an environment alone or they don't, they don't leave an environment left uh, after they've done maintaining resources. Whereas if you maintain your animal life, they actually allow the environment to thrive. So it's one of the ones that are sustainable in the case that your economics grow. It doesn't, you know, decrease as the resources get finished mining. So this type of process here is something that I think is your education and the schools that you build probably head the best towards. They teach people the difference between having something that might be high short-term gain and lower but very much more longer-term gain uh, in terms of the sustainability of wildlife preservation in comparison to, to, to you know, mining and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I just, from my perspective, I don't want to take too much of your time, so I just want to say thank you so much for this discussion. It's absolutely wonderful. I want to give you a chance to add anything else you want to add, anything you want to plug, anything you want to say, please, by all means. Um, well, you know, thank you for the, the chat and you're very well informed, which always helps. Um, I mean, I do a lot of talking at schools because, you know, it's really at, at this ground, ground root level with kids, whether they be in your country or Kenya, Tanzania or in this country, to um, really make them aware of 
how lucky we are to have this wildlife, but how precarious it is. I mean, Richard Attenborough and the programs have been fantastic. So that's that's alerted people to, you know, to the, the glories of wildlife. Um, but, you know, he's a, he's a very, um, he's a very nice man. And sometimes he's, he's not, to my mind, he's not quite tough enough to say, look, this is all going. You know, he's showing all these beautiful animals and it all looks, oh, it's all wonderful. But, you know, um, for how long? And um, yeah. it, would, it would be a tragedy if yours and my grandchildren would, wouldn't see what we've seen. You know, I'm very lucky that my sons have done it, and my my younger boy's been a game ranger in South Africa for three years, having a fabulous time at Sedwana, um, and yeah. um, Shishlui up on uh, above uh, Sedana, uh, Sedona, uh, uh, Sedwana, having a fabulous time out there, um, and I think that was extraordinary there because there in South Africa, you can go diving in the day and see whales, and the afternoon you can go and see elephants. I mean, what an incredible thing you've got in South Africa. Just amazing. Yeah. And, um, you know, one just hopes that people, you know, will always be able to always be able to enjoy that, you know. And as Nikki said, you know, up there, he said, you know, everyone was so happy. Everyone was so, you know, it, it makes people happy to see all these things. You know, it puts them all in a good mood. You know, they don't care what religion, race, colour you are. That's, you know, that, that just goes by the by. And that's something that I always think is so fabulous, that it's a great equaliser to just enjoy nature and enjoy these very, very special animals. And, I mean, I, you know, I have this huge respect for um, leopards and I take people on safaris in India and see tigers which scare the hell out of me. My God, they're dangerous things. And uh, But it's always lions because I think it's because they're so gregarious and they're so, mm -hmm. you see them in a family and, um, you know, so many stories of, um, I'm sure, you know, Pat O'Neill who wrote A Lion in My Bedroom and, you know, people have had so many wonderful experiences with lions and, um, and it, it attracts people's interest. And I mean, when um, I give lectures about Christian lions, you then go on, you start with Christian, you start with that reunion, which everyone gets their tissues out and that. Of course. And then you can go on to, listen, it's not just lions. It's all these other species. And, you know, and, you know, that they're, they're all in danger and, you know, what, and, and how changed the world would be without them. And, um, and obviously, specifically Africa. I love Africa. You know, I've I become, after 1970, when I first saw Africa, I thought, yes, because yes. you know, I grew up in space, spaces, you know, Australia, big, big spaces. I mean, um, my dad's farm was 3000 acres, which in Australian terms is, is a, a backyard. Yes. But because, you know, we were in a very uh, um, high rainfall, it was very, it was good. And when I went to Cora and saw 450 square miles, I thought, aha, this is great. This is Africa. <laughs> Wonderful. I mean, and it's amazing. It's, it's like you said, with, with the children realizing that, you know, it starts with the lion, but the lion doesn't exist without the antelope. And, you know, the antelope doesn't exist without the dung beetle. You know, yep. every part of this chain needs to be conserved. And I know that, you know, especially people like Sir Attenborough absolutely 
you know, I've I've watched so many of his footage and so many of his narrations. It's been so inspiring, and especially from Australia as well. It feels like there's an environment that have just so in touch with um, the wildlife that they have, and you know, there's there's a common experience or common perception that in Australia all wildlife is trying is, is out there to kill you. You know, all of it's deadly and so on. Um, but people like, for example, Steve Irwin uh, just yeah. completely took people's perceptions about these dangerous animals, turned around and just tell them, made them love it uh, by, by showing it, shoving it in their faces and then realizing it. And he was strong about it. You know, where you say Seth Lundberg is, yes, is a bit soft about it. Steve Irwin, he was serious about it. He was you off know, the wall. He was yeah. <laughs> yeah. But it's uh, interesting, but we've got a big, a big rhino project in Australia because we, we've got, um, you know, a lot of uh, Australia uh, looks like Africa, you know, and uh, when they took the um, uh, um, from um, Zimbabwe some years ago, 20 years ago, they flew a lot of um, uh, rhino to Australia because the Zimbabwean government said, look, we're going to lose these guys to someone want them. And a man called Kerry Packer, who was the, um, the big media magnet in Australia, um, he sponsored, flew them over to Dubbo in um, Western New South Wales, a bit further past, past me and much drier. And uh, so... Um, there's a there's a sustainable um, rhino population there, and the only problem was they had was that um, we don't have enough trace elements in the soil for them. They have to substitute their diet, and um, interestingly with tomatoes and things like that, because uh, the the soil in Australia is so leached. You know, it's a very old old country, but so we've got rhinos. We do have rhinos in Australia. And um, because George always fantasized, he said, look, if it all goes wrong here, we can go, we can go to Australia. <laughs> we can restart there. Yeah. But yeah. no, we'll try and get it right in the cradle of humanity first. Keep, it, keep them there. Keep them there. Yeah. Of course. Yeah. But anyways, this has been so amazing to talk to you. Thank you so much. Oh, John. I really, really Thank you. Your time. Um, and yeah. I really hope a lot of other people, you know, they they take this conversation and they go and research the different topics you talk about and then get interested about it. I mean, you really, there really is no other better time than starting today because, you know, yesterday was the time we should have started, but yeah. <laughs> that's okay. I can we'll I just finish on a very funny thing. My son, Nicky, said to me about, about Africa, which he loves. He speaks some Afrikaans, he speaks some Hosa. He's a real, really got into it. He says, Dad, in Africa, there's no fast food. You're either fast or food. <laughs> That's fantastic. I'm going to use that. I'm going to steal that one. I'll quote, I'll, I'll credit him correctly. Okay, no, that's very <laughs> at least in the wild parks. So yeah, no, thank you so much. And really, really appreciate it. Um, and I mean, for our viewers, if you've made it thus far, and you believe in the message that that John shared today and his perspective on, on, on nature and the world, please, by all means, share this message with other yeah, people so they can look at it. Just Google the George Adams and trust and you'll see what we do. And yeah, it's fun. Exactly. Yeah. No, we'll definitely do it and recommend it. So thank you so much to John and thank you so much to everybody that watched thus far. Really appreciate it. This has been Worldview. Okay. Tot sin.